In the past decade, there's been no ideal that's taken a hit quite like the ideal of centrism. That idea has generally become increasingly associated with corruption, with unwillingness to act, and with a moral blandness. But this isn't necessarily the natural progression. Things don't have to be like this. In fact, there's a way to proceed forward with quote-unquote centrist-style governance that accounts for the drastic changes that may need to be made, and that deflects away, not adopts, the corruption that is increasingly present in our current day. The failure to choose this path is one of a type of thinking, a type of thinking that ultimately ends up becoming circular and self-defeating, and that is exactly what we're going to explore today. Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus. A dive into this idea comes on one of the most disinformation-heavy topics, particularly of the past week. That is, the topic of Israel and Palestine. A general background for those who may not be familiar, Israel and Palestine are two regions in the Middle East, with the more extreme proponents on either end typically tending to argue that the other should not be present in that land. Essentially, there is a conflict over exactly what land belongs to whom after the state of Israel was created with heavy US backing after World War II. Of course, World War II saw the Holocaust and one of the worst ethnic persecutions in history, leading to the US and many other allies to believe that a state for Jewish people was necessary in order to prevent further harm. They decided upon the state of Israel, which of course holds religious significance uh, in Judaism. However, this ended up with Israel being situated in a sea of Islamic countries. This also includes many of the people who were living in the area before then, many of whom continue to live in Israel or in other disputed areas. Immediately bordering Israel is the territory of Palestine, which in many people's eyes, would form its own state in the quote-unquote two-state solution. However, because so much of this conflict is reliant on having backers, whether it be the OIC or Organizing of Islamic Cooperation on behalf of Palestine, or whether it's just direct lobbying of the US and other Western countries on the side of Israel, there is heavy stakes possibly even higher than the conflict itself, in maintaining the image of democracy, in maintaining the image of alliances and international support. What that means is that there's increasing necessity for these countries to resort to influencing the media environments in these countries, often through very legal means, such as lobbying, such as advertisements, such as public events, etc. All this means that the information environment 
in which we're trying to find out exactly what is happening, try to get a clear standard in order to measure some of the situations in Israel and in Palestine becomes increasingly difficult. Now, one temptation, one in these troubled waters, is to resort to some type of default centrism. Many people have resulted in these steps, including the government of Canada, including Joe Biden, including the office of Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, etc. Often taking statements that condemn violence, whether it's perpetrated by Israel or by people claiming to represent Palestine. However, a right criticism of this is that these blanket statements often ignore the severity, the frequency, or the character of these types of attacks, and those in support of Israel and those in support of Palestine often raise very strong objections to these types of blanket characterizations. Of course, on this show, we always encourage you to dig deeper, to do your own research, and to weigh the pros and cons. However, on this issue, it may be more difficult than ever. Because there is so much questionable information and very clear political goals by the propagators of either one narrative or the other, we do have to result in some sort of information synthesis, in taking the information and trying to sieve through it to get the best, the most evidence-based information on both sides. One easy trap to fall into, though, is the trap of triangulation. That is, the aesthetic centrism that often misses the very advantages that a centrist approach would otherwise take. That advantage is dynamism, is the ability to adapt to the situation and make decisions based off of the evidence at hand instead of based off of preconceived narratives or ideologies. However, in the modern day, that's often not what centrism is. Instead, centrism is an ideology with its own moral tenets, with its own preconceived beliefs, and most importantly, its own dogma that becomes incredibly difficult to overcome as well. These moral priorities often include the aforementioned triangulation, taking the aesthetic appeal of one side, the aesthetic appeal of the other, and saying, oh, it must be somewhere in the middle, regardless of what the facts actually are. This creates an extremely negative incentive that actually pairs and incentivizes extremism. That's because if you're simply taking the average of two claims that are being made, then the left side will gain more by making an extreme claim, one that they can't even back with evidence, or one that is more extreme than they actually believe. And the same goes for bad faith actors. And the same goes for those on the right wing as well. It also creates a failure in order to understand the moral appeal of centrism, that is, an escape from dogma, and instead provides the very same type of appeal that a conservatism or a liberalism would otherwise try to. In order to try to avoid this phenomenon, I think it's very important to revisit one of the core ideas that I actually only briefly touched on 
in explaining, for one example, COVID-19 responses. That is the idea of exclusive versus inclusive belief. An exclusive belief is one that excludes all other possibilities, that this one thing is true and everything that could be a competing explanation is false. The inclusive belief is the belief that something is possible, that it is one option out of many, and is a belief that retains the epistemic humility, the necessary uncertainty in what you actually believe, that doesn't necessarily stop you from entertaining different arguments. This actually mirrors very well with the extremism that I talked about previously, as well as with earlier ideas of calcification. If you have an exclusive form of centrism, an idea that only the center has to be true and that you shut off consideration for all other alternatives, then that calcification still applies. The one-way function still applies and it becomes much easier to entrench people in these types of aesthetic centrism while making it much harder to break them out. Instead, if you have the inclusive belief that certain center propositions are ones that you agree with, but you're willing to look at evidence and make decisions off of the incoming evidence, then that gives you a much better opportunity and a much more good faith interaction with the rest of the world. An example of the increasing aesthetic centrism that has plagued the West in the past few years or the past few months is the zeroism of COVID-19. This is also one of the core examples of an exclusive belief. Of course, I've criticized the COVID-19 response for more trying to solve the problem of having to think about the coronavirus rather than solving the problem of people catching the coronavirus. This hinges on creating an exclusive belief, either that if you wear your mask in all situations unthinkingly, then you will completely shield yourself from coronavirus, or that you're just going to ignore all possible guidelines and shoot straight for herd immunity. These responses typically don't recognize that different procedures have to be undertaken when the circumstances are different, when there is the possibility of a vaccine, when there is a possibility for limited travel, when the case counts are just different. All of these factors have to change a dynamic response, which may push forward or roll back various guidelines, and the countries that handled it most effectively including Asian democracies, including Australia and New Zealand, tended to have these incredibly dynamic and evidence-based approaches. Instead, there was an increasing institutionalization of the response, an offloading of the responsibility to make your own risk calculations, to make your own decisions to various quote-unquote authorities, various institutions, that took the mantle of providing stone-cold immutable guidelines and generally taking much too long in order to try to steer the ship, and in doing so, lost the trust of somewhere between a majority and a significant minority of the public 
resulting in a complete failure to act collectively. Another demonstration of this exclusive belief is the gut exclusion of specific hypotheses from the origins of COVID-19. Of course, as always, we want to proceed with an evidence-based approach, which means we look at our hypotheses, we look at what evidence there is to confirm or disconfirm them, and generally choose a hypothesis or a set of competing hypotheses that still align with the evidence. However, removing one such possible explanation, and especially barring investigation into possible factors that will confirm or disconfirm it, is an act of dogma, is an act of exclusive belief, and one that can actually significantly harm both the current pandemic situation and the possibility of further pandemics. If you haven't caught on by this point, I'm talking about, among others, articles by Michael Wade, articles in The Atlantic, and even statements by the WHO talking about the necessity to further investigate the possibility of gain-of-function research in contributing towards the COVID-19 pandemic. Essentially, what gain-of-function research is, is its experiments to create various attributes within a virus, often resulting in much higher contagion. The leading hypothesis in this direction doesn't suggest any type of malice. It suggests that people who are genuinely doing work in studying viruses in this gain-of-function research may have had improper safety procedures, which ultimately could have caused the coronavirus. Of course, as I just said, this is one hypothesis out of many, and so far, there has been little, if any, evidence to possibly disconfirm it. Instead, other theories, such as the wet market theory or the pangolin theory, seems to have multiple data points that disconfirm it and very little evidence that would be in favor of either of those arguments. And bodies that have made those claims have mostly since then retracted them. What this means is that we still don't have any type of answer for the origins of COVID-19. And while just picking one hypothesis out of many may be unlikely, it's still something that can be tested. It's something that where it's something where additional data can be collected if the sufficient political pressure is applied to the Chinese government and the and enough institutional involvement is undertaken. However, because it is so easy to entrench people in these types of exclusive beliefs, it is becoming increasingly unlikely that this investigation, that this due diligence, will ever be conducted. This also creates a strong prioritization problem. It's not a natural occurrence that these cult-like beliefs would become dominant in a society. That is because, most often, there is a low enough reinforcement distance, a term I introduced a few episodes ago about the time or the resources it takes in order to test a hypothesis 
by gathering evidence that essentially forces beliefs to become inclusive with the penalty of business failure, loss of revenue, or possibly death. That is, if you make a mistake in certain lines of employment, then it could really mean that you don't live another day. However, as reinforcement distance increases in specific places, as institutions become increasingly able to put more in the way of them being held responsible to actual evidence, then those very institutions become increasingly noisy. Whatever findings they come up with become increasingly irrelevant to what is actually happening. And you get the institutional erosion that we've talked so frequently on this podcast about. Now, I started this episode with a discussion of Israel-Palestine and the bad rep that centrism takes. What, you may ask, might have led us all the way here to talking once again about the absolutely horrendous COVID-19 response in Western countries? Well, the answer is simple. The litigation of specific fact-based issues, of, for example, a concentration of missiles, for example, of the geopolitical right to a given piece of land, is one that is centered around shortening the reinforcement distance towards preventing various institutions from evading the facts on the ground. What you've seen in practice is basically the opposite of that, that the lobbying done by these two countries has created an increasing room for those to completely disbelieve any type of evidence that contradicts their worldview, whether it's those who are hardcore in favor of Israel or those who are hardcore in favor of Palestine. However, trying to reconcile these beliefs also must be done in a way that is not dismissive, that is not exclusive of possible new evidence. There is, ultimately, a world of difference between someone saying, oh, violence is bad on both sides and I'm going to assume it's equal and I'm going to ignore further evidence about it, versus someone saying, look, from my vantage point, after considering information on both sides, after trying to track down any factual claims, I've come to the conclusion that there seems to be that there seems to be valid concerns from both Palestinians and Israelites, and that there seems to be no discussion that tries to synthesize all of them together. With this amount of conflict, it's hard to come to any sort of decision other than identifying that there do exist problems here and there, but I want more evidence to try to confirm and try to help me understand what severity of problems actually exist. And there is exactly the difference. It is not planting down a flag, doing a symbolic gesture of centrism. It's instead truly wandering around, trying to gather as much information as possible, and coming to an admission, not a moral proclamation, but just a simple, truthful statement that I don't know enough 
and from what I do know, the centrist position seems to be the closest. In short, having that humility, as many others in the rationalist community, as many others who have been trying to bring a better name to centrism, have constantly put on the table. Of course, this also becomes increasingly difficult as this is the very behavior that ends up becoming stigmatized. The act of planting a flag is what is rewarded, even if it's a centrist flag. You'll be able to build tribal communities, self-reinforcing communities, particularly on online platforms, simply by planting that flag and making that surface level appeal. There are various studies, including some by Jay Cook Lee and some by Hugo Mercier, that show that conformity tends to be reinforced by these types of media, whether it be mass media or whether it be social media. There is a very reasonable through line to this. As the amount of data increases, the approach in dealing with that amount of data has to naturally become faster if we want to get through all of it. But those faster approximations, those instincts that people have, are exactly the ones that are causing these problems in the first place, and the ones that we've talked about as being so flawed and self-destructive. For one, let's try to compress the data to save on time and on information in a way that doesn't create these exact same problems. A simple, albeit imperfect, obviously, alternative is just random selection. If you only pay attention to 1 in 10 issues chosen at random, then you'll get 1 tenth of the information on average. And that means you'll be able to dedicate much more time in order to actually research, in order to actually think and come to an organic position. Of course, this doesn't necessarily work if you're someone who's involved in politics, and it doesn't necessarily always prioritize those issues that you care the most about. In fact, if you use that as your selection mechanism, you may in fact be falling into one of those exact same insular traps. So, while this may be a choice for some people, it's certainly not one for all. However, if you do remember, we already have laid out a set of core principles in trying to combat these very types of insular dynamics. And, as usual, they apply exactly here. Number 1. Balance the scales. If you see a clear insular dynamic in the news that you watch, in the friends that you make, in the interactions that you have, then simply seek an alternative viewpoint. Especially if it's clear that the ones that you're getting are straw men or caricatures, extreme exaggerations that no one could possibly reasonably hold. The second is follow the attention, and there's no good of a place to do this than the Israel-Palestine conflict. That's because the attention is often incredibly explicit and has clear financial ties. In fact, the original statement that we based this new axiom off of was the Watergate investigations follow the money, 
And in this case, we can do exactly that. And what it reveals is extensive lobbying from Israel and from the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which supports Palestine. With this, we can look at specific actors and specific politicians who may be heavily influenced by both of these organizations, and by various activist groups that are in alignment that ultimately tie to specific factions of one political party or the other in a variety of countries around the world. In this specific case though, because it is so permeating both sides, truly, this is an increasingly difficult puzzle to unravel. One test we could try to make if we wielded enough political power is to say, we're going to punish all people who attempt to lobby in any of these situations and instead are going to free people from those financial ties, guarantee them that they will no longer be a factor, and see what everyone really thinks. Of course, this is an idealized world and we don't hold that much political power. And maybe we wouldn't want to, it could possibly result in authoritarianism. However, an approximation can still be had by looking at various actors that are unaffected, that are as distant from both of these networks as possible. The third and final one is media is power. And once again, it ties in here perfectly with the stream of funding towards lobbying, towards political influence and towards explicitly targeting specific media sources, whether it be CNN and MSNBC on the left, or whether it be Fox News on the right, and other left and right wing sources as well. If that's a process that you cherish, that you appreciate, then I would recommend sharing it to a friend. I would recommend either sharing this podcast, some of our other episodes, or just talking about the core ideas. It's ultimately one of both the easiest, but also the most impactful things you can do. I'm sure there's that one friend who wouldn't trust anyone to give a recommendation other than you. And if you think that this information is worth hearing, well, I hope you do because you're listening to it right now, but if you think it would help them as well, then please give it a shot. If you want to do other things to promote the podcast, you can give us a five-star review. You can share on social media. You can ask questions and give us feedback on how to improve our show further, either by those aforementioned reviews or by emailing metapoliticspodcast at gmail.com. As always, and I mean it every single time, thank you.